Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters. I'm your host for this week, Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Here we are, devoted to the idea that being of one mind, and that mind being the word of Jesus, is the path to unity, to harmony, to life, not only for the church, but for the world. So we gather every week to talk about how to find that unity, particularly in the way we unified of old. In the Lutheran Confessions, the Book of Concord of 1580, we're moving now into the Apology. That's the defense of the Augsburg Confession, which was released after the Augsburg Confession when the Roman Catholics rejected it. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Today, we're going to move into the first article that they rejected. That is Article 2 on Original Sin. I have a whole panoply of guests with me today. Uh, Peter Ill, not Peter the Third, if you know him on Facebook, <laughs> uh, but Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Nilstadt, Illinois. Uh, Pastor Peter Ill, I should say or Reverend, uh, Mr. Peter Slayton, social media manager for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, John Sias, guest extraordinaire, secretary of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has spent the last, what, what couple of months knee-deep, neck-deep in bylaws and, Somewhere up there, and yeah. minutia. So joining us to, to get back into the uh, the activity that a parish pastor loves, teaching the Word of God, and Reverend Sh- Sean Smith, of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois, and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois. Uh, ready to dig into this Article 2 of the Augsburg Confession. You can also, however, watch us right now, believe it or not, on facebook.com slash KFUO radio. That's facebook.com slash KFUO radio. And uh, if you'd like to ask a question to myself or any of the gentlemen here, you can call one eight. Do we have someone on the phones? Maybe we don't. You cannot call. Do not call. Just smile <laughs> loudly and think deep thoughts, and we'll probably talk about it anyway. You can post comments on Facebook. You could put. Who's someone watching that? I'll, I'll watch. Them. And Peter's going to watch. So okay, on Facebook.com/slash KFU Radio underneath the video. Wait, Sarah's watching. But you got a mic, and uh, you can leave a comment there, and we will. You're going to watch it, Peter. We'll both take care of it. Okay. Yeah. You're the bum. Um, all right. So, the meat. The guys last week got a little bit ahead of where we're going to pick up, uh, or actually we're going to jump back to, to just kind of make sure we're r- getting a running head start into what can be a bit of a scholastic issue, and that's what we'll get to with uh, paragraph 12, but l- setting this all up is paragraph 7, where it says, we have not only used the word concupiscence, But we have also said that the fear of God and faith are lacking. We added this comment because the scholastic teachers do not understand the definition of original sin well enough. They take what they receive from the fathers and extend the definition of original sin. They argue that the evil inclination is a quality like a blemish on the body. With their usual folly, they ask whether this quality is caused from the contagiousness of the apple or from the breath of the serpent and whether medicines can cure the condition, they suppress the main point with such questions. So when they talk about original sin, they do not mention the more serious faults of human nature, 
such as ignorance of God, contempt for God, total lack of fear of God, and confidence in God, hatred of God's judgment, fleeing from God when he judges us, despairing of God's grace, putting trust in the things of this world, and so forth. And I think we got, man, there's enough meat there to talk for a couple of hours. Uh, you know, what? Concupiscence. Let's just start there, though, right? So they throw, they drop this bomb of a word, and a modern person is going to run in. And they're going to say, "What is that? Uh, why are we even using this word? What is concupiscence? Where'd that word come from?" Well, concupiscence uh, is this um, eager de- desire. It's uh, orientation, inclination, always towards sin, and that's the the. The argument that the Catholics and the Scholastics have going on here is that they they have a couple issues. Namely, one of them is is that uh, um, that you you don't uh, you don't have concupiscence after baptism, and that's right. where Luther says, "No, uh, we definitely do. It, it, it hangs on there and clings on." And they also have issue with this fear of God stuff. Right. I want to dig into that yeah. fear of God stuff, but that baptism taking away sin thing, like that's not really the ancient meaning of concupiscence. Concupiscence is, is a is a broader term, right? Yeah, for us it's unfamiliar because we are a few generations removed from the Latin Vulgate, but uh, in the Latin, concupiscence, uh, concupiscentia, is just a Latin word that's used for uh, the covetousness, the desire of the human nature, that sinful desire. It's all through Romans and Paul's epistles and uh, would have been commonly known to those that heard epistles in the church. Um, and still in the Roman Catechism, it's a word of some prominence, so we don't we don't call upon it all that much. Right. I didn't know that. And and it's interesting because when we look at the Ten Commandments, oftentimes it's like that Commandment 9 and 10 where we get like really convicted. It's like, oh, you think you kept them, but here's covetousness. And then that's the word that they kind of were using to mean sin, right? Um, any thoughts on this end? Nope. No thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. No, we'll have some. Don't we'll worry. have some. It's, uh, one passage that has some particular freight here, and, and I think we'll see it a little bit later in the passage if we get there, is, uh, if I quit interrupting us. but uh, No, no, you're good. Keep talking. Uh, is uh, when Paul speaks of... Uh, uh, his not knowing what covetousness was, right? Had the law not told him not to covet, right? Uh, that's that's in play there. This is the concupiscence, and uh, so it's it's not only a, a peripheral sin as we think of. Well, you know, ninth or tenth commandment, we rarely get that far down before we find something amiss. But uh, it's it's really central to our our existence as fallen human beings, and and Paul gives it pride of place in his in his epistles, and that's where. Or the reformers, I think, want to get back to as well, as opposed to the medieval idea was that you were born with this concupiscence, you were born with some sort of original sin, but then in baptism, it wasn't just declared gone, it wasn't just promised to be gone in Jesus, you weren't just forgiven, but you literally no longer had it. And so now you could kind of get on that ladder of pre-purgatory climbing toward heaven without being burdened by all of your works being filthy rags anymore. And this is the thing that we've said, no, that's not true, and we've been rejected because of that. Yeah, and and, and also tying in here, too, it's a little more basic in that folks uh, at that time, and and really even still today, we still face this in American Christianity, that uh, to sin is just the act of doing something wrong. Um, And that's where concupiscence, by its very Latin, um, you know, 
connections there uh, has that 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 desire. You know, desire is very much a part of this. It, it begins in the thoughts, and and that is the very root of where the thing comes from. And uh, it, if anyone out there listens or watches uh, The Walking Dead, this actually was, was an issue. Yeah, yes. yeah, I'm on top of you, Slayton. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I on The Walking Dead, you. there was a priest on the on the show uh, who just priest. this past Sunday, yeah, um, uh, said you know that the thoughts aren't sinful, um, you know, and, and limiting it only to these actions. But it's that desire; it comes from the thoughts that those we're all wrapped up in this. Syndrome. But if you believe in salvation by works, then you have to start saying the thoughts aren't sinful. Otherwise, you can't possibly be saved, right? This right. is the problem that they run into. But then they run into that contrary to Jesus, who says that it is out of the uh, heart of a man that come all evil things, uh, not just out of his mouth and the things that he says or his hands, the things that he does, but out of his very heart. And so it is our thoughts and our actions are all influenced by sin. And this goes back to the confession of sin that we use uh, in the liturgy week in and week out, where we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. And and we confess before God and before each other this very concupiscence that we talk about here in the Apology. We just don't use the fancy word concupiscence. When uh, Pastor Smith there, when you mentioned American evangelicalism, it struck me again, like it's easy to say, oh, the Roman Catholics, they got it wrong because they think concupiscence go away, goes away in baptism. But out in the American Christian landscape, there's also this belief that the, the baptism of the Spirit, the second baptism, uh, the holiness bodies will be effectively teach that you can become sinless. You can leave this concupiscence behind. And so we stand apart from them as well on this matter because we believe that sin is sin and that its worst is not adultery, lying, murdering. Its worst is a lack of fear of God, a lack of confidence in God, fleeing from his judgment, despairing of grace. That That's where we are most naturally evil and everything else, adultery, lying, murder, theft, that all comes from this, right? I think this happens even earlier than the whole concept of the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If we're talking about other American denominations, you see this being denied with the whole age of accountability. The, mm-hmm. This idea that yeah. a child, until they reach a certain age, really they're treated as if they are pure, as if they are innocent. Uh, we see this creeping into even how we talk about children very often. We want to talk about children as as innocent, as pure, as unblemished. Um, it doesn't reach the level of doctrine within our within our churches, hopefully, um, because that, that would be a false doctrine. But we still see this influence of, oh, that sweet, innocent little child. And that right there is a denial of, of concupiscence to, to look at children that way. Yeah, and already here in the Apology, too, Melanchthon and the Lutherans are separating themselves not just from Rome, but also from Zwingli. They're already uh, dealing with that issue because, yeah, it comes from the Anabaptists, the Zwingli Anabaptists, that that this uh, um, American Christian, American evangelicalism idea is 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 stemmed all the way from that Anabaptist root. Right, we should really make sure we parse that out, that at the era when Luther is fighting, as it were. Uh, You have Rome on the one side, and then you have this guy Zwingli on the other side who almost unites with the Lutherans, but they can't agree on the Lord's Supper, which happens to have a lot more to do with things than you would think, because it gets down to things like original sin. And uh, Zwingli is the kind of spiritual forefather of what becomes John Calvin's 
Geneva, which then most of American Protestantism does flow out of that. I don't know that we could quite put them with the uh, uh, the Mennonites and so forth, but but it does flow in that direction. And in fact, uh, Luther kind of calls them all of one feather at one point. Uh, so paragraph 12 then is where we're supposed to be uh, if I hadn't taken us off on, on this tangent. But I think it's just so important to know that that's setting the stage now for what paragraph 12 is going to talk about is this concupiscence that we hold to it being not something that goes away. Sin is lack of faith in God, and uh, we, we still have it within us. Paragraph 12, 12 reads, After the scholastics mixed philosophical speculations about the perfection of nature, the light of reason, with Christian doctrine, they credited more than was possible to the ability of free will. They taught that people are justified before God by philosophical or civic righteousness. We too confess that such things are subject to reason, and so to some degree are within our power. However, as a result of their speculations, they could not see the inner uncleanness of human nature. This can only be evaluated and understood on the basis of God's word, which the scholastics do not use very often in their discussions. <laughs> I have a little note next to mine saying, ha, you've got all these arguments, but they're not backed up by scripture. It's amazing. <laughs> I love uh, Melanchthon's kind of snark there. We talked oh, yeah. about when we were doing the, the lead up to the apology, how the gloves kind of come off at this point, and they're no longer trying to win over the opponent. Uh, so he just kind of calls it like it is. But what's that idea there? I mean, it's pretty, that sentence begins pretty rough. Mixing speculations about the perfection of nature and the light of reason to credit more to free will than should be. What, what does that mean? It well, means that sinners are trying to get out from under the law of God. And they're trying to say, oh, well, it's it's not all bad. There's There's a little bit of good. Maybe my thoughts and my nature aren't completely and totally corrupt. So look at me because I can kind of sort of do something that's not completely messed up. And connected in with the first commandment, which all of this is the real problem. It's always the real problem is that first commandment. And we don't live in the fear, love, and trust of God above all things. And so there's this human desire within us to want to climb up to God. It's, 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 it manifests itself in this way. And that if there's some way that I can feel like that there is some good in me still, um, I can feel better about myself and I can feel better about the world, but the, it actually leads to more frustration and more brokenness and doesn't actually answer the issue. It, what's important there, I think, is that at the time they were trying to find that good spark in myself in reason. And we live in a very different time now where we're trying to find that good spark in how I, how I feel, mm -hmm. right? And how I want, right. and that's that shift from modern to postmodern. Any thoughts? I, this is a place where, you know, the, the confession itself has a more erratic tone. It's, it's trying to express the faith in a way that the Catholics might be able to accept. But I noted, looking back at this, at, at uh, Article 2, the, the end of, 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 uh, of the article on original sin, Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. And I thought, well, there's a little bit of snark Even coming there. out there already yeah. because <laughs> nobody'd seen a straight-on Pelagian you know, that called himself that in years. Right. Semi-Pelagianism had been condemned by the church for uh, centuries, but uh, they just laid that out there right. to say, right. you know, if you say this is possible, that means you're one of them. Yeah, right. You're and, putting yourself in that boat. And so they've they've tossed the softball up, and now, uh, now Melanchthon's given it a good swing here. Well, and then they, they set apart paragraph 13 here. This is, you know, the editors later, but because I think it does drive home 
maybe the major point of the confessions altogether, the major point of being of one mind in Christ, why concord, if it does matter, harmony, if it does matter, must come from Christ, that this can only be evaluated and understood on the basis of God's word, that our belief in our own evil is beyond our ability to see. It's more than my failures. It's more even than my wrongdoings, that there's some diabolical darkness within me that I, I can't even experience. I just have to believe it, right? Yeah, and, and Luther actually picks this up in the small card articles, uh, Article 3, and I'm going to read a quote here. This hereditary sin is so deep a corruption of nature that reason cannot understand it. It must be believed because of the revelation of the scriptures. And then he cites all of the scriptures that made this. I mean, and, and th- this, again, is, is part of the problem. There's there's that I want to be kind of a god to myself, right? And so I want to believe that there's still some good in me, and so we just have to figure out how to deal with that. Uh, and so in my baptism, that is dealt with, but it's a denial of the entire corruption of the nature. That's what the fall into sin in Genesis 3 did. You know, I have to wonder what influence this, the scholastics then had on what was eventually going to become the Enlightenment. We're not in the Enlightenment yet, but we're getting there pretty close. And when you get to the Enlightenment, we're full-blown into John Locke and his tabula rasa, where you're, you're a blank slate, tabula rasa, blank slate. Um, and so your your nature is whatever you make of it. It's whatever input there is. It's how the, how the parents raise you. There's a complete denial of original sin. You mentioned modernism and postmodernism, and that's a basic tenet of modernism. And I, I always, as I read the confessions, one of the things that helps me as a layperson figure out why does this matter is just looking at, okay, where do we have this today? And <laughs> Even though we are moving into a post postmodernism or have begun that move, there is still very much a complete denial of original sin. Um, you will hear everywhere humans are basically good. Uh, we get that from modernism, and you can even see um, the reference here with the scholastics, the light of reason. They're already beginning to move. It's not just a spark anymore. It, it moves into full blown. No, we're basically good, and we're, we're going to go from there. And we still have that hanging around today. We still have to deal with that. Any person you talk to, I don't need God. I'm not a sinner. What do you yeah. mean? I just think that the location of that spark now, again, we have moved out of, you're not going to find in a college campus, you're not going to be arguing that humans are basically good because we all use logic and we all right. reason. No, yeah, it's definitely not right? that anymore. They've moved We've, to, yeah. <laughs> the, again, the feeling, whatever you want to call that, the we authentic experience. Yeah, yeah, reason didn't fix it. Yeah, There's and, still something wrong. And, and you as the social media guy for the LCMS, right? How often do you see on social media uh, these oh. pictures, right? You know, you put a little uh, white baby and a little black baby sitting next to each other, maybe playing nice, and it says, oh, racism is learned. And it's like, no, it, it comes from what? the sinful nature. It's right. a denial <laughs> of the sinful nature. Yep. It's a denial of this concupiscence. And so, it, yeah, this tabula rasa stuff still floats around. All of this stuff still floats around. I mean, the nature-nurture debate... It, Looks like you want to jump in. Go, go. Well, I just had a new line. Yeah. Oh, Do that it. baby is so concupiscent. <laughs> oh, 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 I don't oh, know. Let's hashtag that. Is, yeah. is Concord Matters a pun-free zone? I'm not sure. It's a little dangerous. Better lock me out. <laughs> that baby is so concupiscent. I, I'm lost for words at this see, point. See, as, as a social media manager, we were trying to start a campaign with the hashtag, this is my concupiscence. But everything we came up with was either way too snarky to post on the LCMS page or it was just depressing. And I was like, I I can't do a campaign based around this. It doesn't work. It's just depressing. It is a dark, dark topic. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The evil within, the the offing tongue, the dark night of the soul is the closest we ever really get to this. It's not surprising we want to avoid it and get rid of it. 
but but it does bear witness to or, or bear um, uh, discussion here to to point out that this is why the very next articles of dealing with Christ and justification flow forth from this because mm-hmm. if we fail to understand our total depravity of this sinful problem right then we really don't get the gospel and we really don't get what Christ is about and it's going to lead into issues in the Lord's Supper it's going to lead into how you view baptism it's going to lead into good works and everything else and so we really as St Paul says we we really have to understand the our our sin and the law shows us that um to really get the gospel at this point in the confession this is the pull the band-aid off fast approach in great length but we're still doing that very thing of realizing at the very beginning of the apology and at the very beginning of the Augsburg Confession as well, this is really bad. And Christians are always trying to get out from under this really bad concupiscence. But but pastor, but mom, but dad, it, I didn't do anything wrong. I just thought it. And we think that way every day in our lives and try to get away from the strictness and the severity of God's law that says that everything we do and everything we touch is corrupt. Yeah, it didn't didn't mean to do it, as the one I hear sometimes at home, right? <laughs> and I'll, as if as if that excuses the evil that is within me, and confronting that fact. Uh, paragraph fourteen. Let's let's dig a little more here. All of these things are the reason why we made mention of concupiscence in our description of original sin, and why we deny to human nature, the ability to fear and trust in God. We want to show that original sin contains these diseases, ignorance of God, contempt of God, not having fear and trust in God, the inability to love God. These are the chief faults of the human nature because they conflict with the first table of the Ten Commandments. This is where, first time I read through the the Book of Concord, I was just struck by this, that my real problem is that I don't have faith. That's that's actually what my sin is. I don't fear and I don't trust God. And that that is still within me, still boiling up within me, uh, trying to escape from within me. And yet, as, as Pastor Smith said a moment ago, it is by being brought face to face to see that, that I suddenly can understand the deep, deep love of Christ. And, uh, you know, he who is forgiven much loves much. So the band-aid is being pulled off fast and hard so that I can scream out in pain, Lord have mercy, right? Exactly. And then, and then he placards Christ before my eyes. we got about a minute here before we go to break. Any comments on that? This is really the litmus test of justification by faith, I think. Uh, if one, you know, one can, can kind of get by believing justification for discrete sins, actual sins. Christ covers that. Christ covers that. But on a whole, I'm pretty decent. Right. But when one comes face to face with this darkness, uh, when we're shocked by ourselves, as we should be if we, we use Luther's catechism, and it, and it says it's for lack of fear and love of God that we do all these wrong things, uh, leading us to see our concupiscence, then we see what kind of a Savior we need and, and what kind we have. Yeah, and, and as pastors, we, we often encounter, too, that when we when we wrestle with these things and we hit it head on, we get told, oh, you're so depressing. All you want to do is talk about sin. You, how about you give an uplifting sermon at, you know, something like Catch a wedding? Catch more with honey well, because, than with vinegar. Because sin is the problem that's going to destroy yeah. your wedding or your, you know, uh, whatever have you, um, you know, these uplifting thoughts that we want to have. And it's more uplifting. We are incredibly joyful people when we deal with the sin problem because the love of Christ abounds all the more. 
When I was in my darkest times, uh, early college years, I was uh, committing a particular sin regularly over and over again. And I was coming back into the church at the time and I was struggling with it. And I, I would catch myself after the event saying as I walked, you know, angry, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I did that again. And finally it struck me. My problem wasn't that I did it. It's that I didn't believe I was capable of it. Mm-hmm. Right? That I believed that I could somehow overcome it on my own. I can't believe I have this sin. And that was exactly what I needed to know. That this is something that God has known all along. <laughs> He's never been blind about it at all. And that's precisely why Christ died. Because God believes that you did that. And he wants to take care of it. His answer is either to punish you or to punish Jesus. And that's why he sent his son to do that. We're going to talk more about that on the other side of this break. Listening to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. Recently graduated from high school or college and looking for a chance to serve a community in need while sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Lutheran Young Adult Corps may be for you. Lutheran Young Adult Corps provides opportunities for long-term, full-time service for 10 weeks through the summer or 10 months over the school year in places like St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Boston. Find out more about Lutheran Young Adult Corps by finding us online at lcms.org slash Y-A-C-O-R-P-S or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lutheran Y-A Corps. St. Paul's Lutheran Church, De Pere, invites you to a service of sacred music featuring St. Paul's choirs, handbells, and orchestra on Saturday, December 10th at 5 p.m. and Sunday, December 11th at 4 p.m. Pre-service music will begin 20 minutes before the hour. St. Paul's is located on Manchester Road across from West County Mall. May your heart be filled with peace and joy as you hear the Word of God proclaimed in word and song. The Savior, Jesus, was born for you. If you have a question about the LCMS, contact the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Church Information Center and you'll be connected with a real person who can help you find the answer. Call 1-888-THE-LCMS or 1-888-843-5267 or email them infocenter at lcms.org. Helping you with your questions and finding you resources. The LCMS Church Information Center. What's your guess? It's the only state without a city named from the Bible. The city of Aloha. Worldwide, guess which Bible-named city appears to be most popular? One count shows over 40 places in the world called Bethlehem, over 25 of them in the U.S. alone. And one of the most well-known is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, founded by members of the Moravian religious group, who on Christmas Eve named their town after the biblical Bethlehem in Judea, the birthplace of Jesus. New Canaan, Connecticut references the land of Canaan in the Hebrew Bible. 
Goshen, New York, is reminiscent of the land of Goshen mentioned in Genesis and Exodus. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love mentioned in the Revelation. St. James, St. Peter, St. Joseph, Mount Zion, Bethesda, Jericho, and many others. Cities with a history rooted in the book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to Concord Matters, seeking unity of mind in the good words of Jesus Christ. Digging through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 2 on Original Sin with my guests, Peter Ill of Trinity, Milstadt, Illinois, Peter Slayton, Social Media Manager for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, John Sias, Secretary of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and Pastor Sean Smith of St. Paul and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both over the water in Illinois. You can also watch us right now on Facebook.com slash KFUO Radio, and hello to those of you out there that have said hello to us. Uh, feel free to ask a question there or call. Oh, no, no, I was wrong about that before. I'm wrong about Still it again. You can write a question on Facebook and ask us about uh, concupiscence or apparently the last episode of The Walking Dead. Both uh, Peter and uh, and Sean have said they're willing to give spoilers if you need them. Um, <laughs> Wait. <laughs> yeah. So my... Oh, you can oh, we got someone to call. Oh, you can call at 1-800-S, cross it all out, 730-727-2... No, excuse me. 1-800-730-2727. I'll say that again. 1-800-730-2727. We would love to have a question from a live person. We'll give you pride of place. Um, I, I had a question, though, I was going to throw at the guys. Now, so they said that this this concupiscence, this sin within us, this fleshly state that we're born into, they call it ignorance of God or not having fear and trust in God or the inability to love God. But what about that person who says, oh, I don't believe that at all. I love God. I'm not a Christian. Uh, I know who God is, you know, the God who I, I speak to daily. Right? What do you say in that kind of a situation? You don't love God. Really? <laughs> well, why, why, do you, why are you still sick? Why do you have brokenness in the body? Why do you have brokenness in the flesh? Why will you die? Because loving God is part of the righteousness that is demanded of us in the, in the 10 commandments. And that righteousness clearly has to be severed set and broken. We imperfectly love God, this side of the return of Christ. There's another side of that righteousness too. I think uh, John gets into, and, and Luther also in his, uh, his small catechism, John says, you know, if you can't love the brother that you see, mm. how can you say you love the God right. you, you have not seen? And that seems totally backwards to us because our brothers that we see, I mean, there's a lot not to like, but uh, <laughs> yes. I, I don't have any brothers. My sisters will leave her out of this, but, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot not to like in what we see. How can you love God whom you've not? But the fact is we love God whom we've not seen because we see he forgives our sins. Uh. And uh, so that righteousness of God that goes beyond the righteousness of the of the law to the righteousness of Christ is right there. And and Luther puts us to that with the, the Ten Commandments again. Uh, every time he says we should fear and love God so that uh, we do not hurt or harm our neighbor and so on and so forth. Uh, well, it, it, there it is. Right. If I loved God, I wouldn't do these things. Well, I think a, a, my first answer was a little snarky, but I yes. think a more, <laughs> a more serious answer would be, well, which God? Right. Because somebody like that, when you when you push them, if it's, well, you know, I love God, but I'm not a Christian, when they start defining who this God is and his attributes and whatnot, you'll very quickly find, well, this, this isn't the God of Scripture. Uh, it, it'll be a, 
as I heard at a at the most depressing funeral I've ever been to, the God of your own understanding. Mm. And that's when you start digging into that, that's a very horrible place to be. Right. It's an idol. That's concupiscence. Yeah, there, we're yeah. right back to it. Hey. Yeah. But it's an idol. The God that of your own mind, the God who you have made up so that you don't have to face the God who is, frankly, without Jesus, unlovable, uh, hateful. We, should, we, we do hate him by nature, and then he's destroying us. What, what, what is there to love? This, that was Luther's dilemma in the monastery. He realized, I hate, I hate this guy um, because he didn't know the forgiveness of sins. And then when the forgiveness comes, it's just it revolutionizes, regenerates everything. Paragraph 15 is going to go on and and emphasize something I think gets emphasized again and again in the confessions. And it's one of the reasons I came to love the confessions. Really, two major ones. One, they're always about Jesus and your conscience, which is great. Two, though, they're not new. We have not said anything new, they say. The ancient definition of original sin understood correctly says precisely the same thing. Original sin is the absence of of original righteousness. From there, they're going to go into uh, original sin again. And we're, uh, let's get back into that. But first, this this beautiful fact is like, look, look being, quote unquote, Lutheran, standing at this point where we're going to give this confession, we're not trying to make a new church. We're not trying to come up with a new idea. It's not us and our Bible in a corner. We're standing on the backs of what's always been said Christianity is. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're going back to Augustine here and they're going back to the church fathers. Um, you know, just because, um, the scholastics have started twisting, uh, meanings and wrangling over these things they say, no, no, let's go back. How has this been understood from the beginning? Because if we're coming up with something new, that's, and still true today, if, if someone comes in and says, oh, I have a new way to approach this. Right. And it's like, well, that's your first sign of heresy. Right. Innovation is a word that the confessions don't look well on, particularly when it comes to the knowledge of God. Or the idea, again, we talk about American Christianity, how common it is to have a word from God, if you're watching TV preachers these days, um, or uh, to to try to find, you know, what does God want me to do with my day in the clouds or the passing butterflies? And all of that is in the way of this great history that we can stand upon knowing the same thing we confess has been confessed by the cloud of witnesses, or that, that the truth that Jesus spoke is same is the same truth yesterday, today, and tomorrow. American culture really runs on this innovative and the new and the creative, but uh, for the reformers and for the thinkers of the Renaissance, they were all about the old. And so instead of talking about the new, they always said, the old way was doing it this way. We need to go back to that again. And they got really excited about what had been that had been lost and distorted. And so they had this eagerness to go back. And we in our Americanness so often want to go forward. But Christ calls us back to himself. We continue to hear those words of, of John the Baptizer, our Advent preacher, who says, repent, and we continue to need to be called back to recognize our sinful nature and to hear that question, who warned you of the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? It, old-fashioned is a bad word, right? Such a stick in the mud. Yeah, and yet, except for when it's old-fashioned ice cream, then everyone's happy about it, right? <laughs> so, but what is this idea that if it is... If it's older than my generation, somehow it's therefore wrong. Uh, that, that's something that we just have to reckon with. It's, built, it's in the water you know, in, our, in our culture. Well, and, and, and even that, too, um, 
when people do get into um, the history and what has been done, they they tend to, in our present context, have a limited scope of history. It maybe only goes back one generation or two, and they're like, "Well, that's the way it was always done here." And it's like, "No, no, was it really?" I mean, let's let's evaluate this objectively and figure out what has been the real, true history of the church and what what is faithful, what is good, right. what has stood the test of time. And, well, and notice, it's not just tradition. We're not just wanting to do it that way because that's the way we've always done it. Um, we The jokes about Lutherans not changing are a dime a dozen. But as, as Luther and Melanchthon and the other reformers are working, the goal is to return to what is good, to return to what is scriptural, to return to what is faithful, not just because we've always done it that way. Uh, for them, returning to a correct understanding of concupiscence and original sin and justification and so on was a big change, but an important one, one that is faithful to Scripture. It's founded on the belief that truth doesn't change. Exactly. And and so if it's true, we're going to find it in the past, right? (laughs) If we can't find it in the past, then it can't have been eternally true. And that's that's the real threat. I mean, maybe that's a threat to American Christianity, too, is one of the questions to ask, in a sense, is where do you find what you see out there in the past? Uh, it's, it's cut off. And the flip side, I see how many cliches we can fit in in one segment here. We got stick in the mud. I forgot which one you just said a moment ago. But the, the opposite of stick in the mud is uh, reinventing the wheel, right? So you got the old-fashioned stick in the mud, but you got the person who wants to reinvent the wheel, and they end up with the worst wheel. Um, cocktails? What? <laughs> what? Oh, my goodness. Um, all right. So, five o'clock. so I drove us off on a tangent there just based on that first line. But now their point is, what are we not saying new? What are we saying that is old? So they quote this definition of original sin from, from the old church fathers. Original sin is the absence of original righteousness. And then they say, you got you to gotta explain that. What is righteousness? And here the scholastics wrangle over philosophical questions They do not explain what original righteousness is. In the scriptures, righteousness consists not only in obeying the second table of the the Ten Commandments, which are about good works and serving our fellow man, but also the first table, which teaches about fearing God, faith, and loving God. Therefore, original righteousness includes not only physical health in all ways, as they contend, such as pure blood and unimpaired physical ability, but also these gifts— a sure and certain knowledge of God, fear of God, confidence in God, and the desire and ability to give God these things. It's the picture of heaven, right? That it's not about my body no longer decaying. It's the fact that I'll actually love God for the first time. I'll really know what it's like to have no other gods, to never take his name in vain, uh, to always have my will in sync with his. That's original righteousness. And Pastor Fisk, you you go to heaven, but my mind was pulled back to Genesis uh, to go back in history. You're old-fashioned, that's why. I am (laughs) old-fashioned. But to go back to, and God looked at everything that he had made, and it was very good. And this original righteousness is how God created the world, and it's what's lost in the fall, and what's lost in original sin. And this whole image of the image of God is tied in together with original righteousness. Uh, and they work together. The idea of pure blood, for some reason, makes me think of vampires. I don't know why. Um, but the, uh, the it has nothing to do with your comment. Oh, okay. No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm looking at paragraph 17. Yeah. I just got distracted by it. But they, they were arguing at this time period that original righteousness, that we're talking about 1500s, they're arguing that original righteousness is physical health. 
such as having pure blood. Like, and I don't think they're talking about race at all, right there. What they're getting at that it was it was really about some sort of like diseaseless yeah. state. Your humors weren't out of whack. Yeah, yeah. right, right. No bad back or anything like that. Uh, but what they were missing, the heart of the matter, which is again that this need of the human being as creature to know its creator, our creator, and that that's the absence of that. So that original sin is that absence, that lack of again is faith. When God says in Genesis it was very good about man and the angels, frankly, uh, it, it was a matter of their knowing him perfectly. And everything else flowed from that. Right? Scripture testifies this. Well, it looks like the confessions are on your side, uh, uh, Pastor Ill, uh, because they go back to Genesis. Scripture testifies this when it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that man was made in the image and likeness of God. What else was this image and likeness other than that man was created with wisdom and righteousness so that he might apprehend God and reflect God. Mankind was given the gift of knowing God, fearing God, and being confident in God. Repeating itself, kind of saying the same thing there again, but really uh, adding this one idea of that the, the image of God, which I know there's some debate out there in, in Protestant circles, you know, is, what is the image of God? And frankly, I hear them make the argument reason is usually what they come back to, which is what the medieval scholastics were doing, Right. And here we're saying the image of God is is knowledge of him. It's faith. Well, I was right. going to comment on the whole image of God thing because, yeah, coming from a, a evangelical background, that is a big question because there's this, everyone's made in the image of God, therefore we should value everyone. But where you go, when you try and define what that image of God is, you, know, you said reason. I've also heard, well, it's, you know, we have a face and arms and, and hands and legs and all that that... It's, it's a physical image of God that everybody has. Um, what's interesting is most evangelicals will, will not say that everyone has lost the image of God. Hmm. Um, there, there is a very strong strain where every person on the earth, regenerate or not, still retains the image of God in some way. We're clearly saying here that no, everyone's actually lost it. And it's Christians yeah. you who are have of your, regained it. You are of your father, the devil, is what Jesus says. Yeah. And it's not just that we have uh, kind of lost the image of God. And that's the argument that, that Peter was making, too, is uh, just like you can't be kind of pregnant, you can't kind of lose the image of God. <laughs> kind of sinful, <laughs> yeah, right. You're not kind of sinful. You're all the way sinful. Uh, and your concupiscence shows the enormity and severity of your sin in both your actions and your thoughts. It's just a little sin. I'm still good. I'm still good. I, I think the perspective that a person still has to have some recognizable image of God or what we'd say, you know, humanity uh, in order to be pitied or loved, it is a reflection of the concupiscence itself. Huh. Um, yeah, you know, Luther, Luther speaks of uh, the love of God in the, the Heidelberg Disputation. You know, it, it doesn't seek the thing that it loves, like our fallen love does. I love chocolate or ice cream or whatever, but uh, it, it seeks to create that which it loves in the thing that is not. It, it calls the things that are not, and they are. And... Um, so, so when we understand that, to, to say, well, you know, we've, we've lost the image of God. We're not even recognizably human in our sinfulness. Right. And yet, God reaches out in Christ, becomes man, you know, takes that on, that identity, and, and suffers in our place. Then we say, well, that's, we, can, we can deal with that. Christ has dealt with it. 
to give us his image, he took on our image, uh, not scorning to be born uh, from the Virgin Mary, but rather coming and taking on a human likeness and a human form, even suffering death, death on a cross. Yeah, absolutely. Became a, like a worm and not a man, as one from whom men hide their faces. You know, that's mm. that's what all this is getting at. I love that thought. The, and I know you're drawing this from Dr. Luther, that, that we are in our flesh, in our sinful state, not fully human. And unre- you said unrecognizably as human, from God's perspective, we've become uh, less than man. And Christ is, as Son of Man, a restoration to that. And his baptism, his gift of washing, is to, to bind us to that renewed, restored, resurrected humanity. But to, to reckon with that now, that in my flesh, even you know the old Adam I carry around with me, it's, it's as much a child of Satan, or more, not as much. It is a child of Satan. It is not a child of God. And uh, that that is fear of God, not in the way that I would fear him, but trust him. It is to run from him, to despise him. And that this war then is the weird thing about a Christian is always kind of part of the topic, that war between that flesh and my heart in Christ, my spirit in Christ, um, is is one that we always have to reckon with, too. I don't know if that really helps. but Well, and, and to get back to your question uh, coming out of the break about loving God— um, this, this is all wrapped up in that first table and how we were created. Luther captures this really well in his Genesis commentary when he talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as being a sanctuary, a place of worship. Mm, right. Um, I love that stuff. For Adam and Eve. Right. And every time that they walk past it and don't eat of the fruit, they're living in the perfect righteousness of the fear, right. love, and trust in God. They have everything wrapped up right. in God. Um, it's unthinkable to do that. Right. And and the fall into sin corrupts that so much that all things are broken uh, just just by not living in that well, fear, and, love, and trust. That the yet. only way we can explain it now is to call it a test. Right. That God right. wasn't satisfied with us being righteous. He wanted to see if we'd be more righteous by loving him freely or some just made up poppycock, right? right. As opposed to, there's just a genius on this, that what that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, was the promise of eternal life. And they were just to stare at it and believe they would never die. Uh, and that's oh, man, that's what we lost. Uh, but our how how wicked are we? But but we regain. You, you say we lost, but we also regain in the cross the tree yes. of life. And yeah, well, that's good. That's good. Great hymn. And too. by regain, yeah. you mean are given back, right? As promise. As yeah. promise. Yeah. Okay. With, with this through faith reality too, though. I mean, there's that. What do you call it? The, the subjective justification that my faith has experienced a belief in this. Like I believe it's true, and mm-hmm. I didn't when I was an unbeliever. But what I think you're getting at, uh, Pastor Hill, is that what we don't get back is original righteousness without original sin still in these bodies. Yeah? Exactly. Yeah. So, paragraph 19. Yeah? This is how Iranius, awesome name, and Ambrose, another good name, good baby names for those of you listening out there. Tomorrow is Ambrose Day. Is it his way. day? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ambrose is a great name. Uh, this is how Irenaeus and Ambrose interpret the likeness of God. Ambrose not only says many things to this effect, but especially declares, That soul is not therefore in the image of God in which God is not dwelling at all times. Paul shows in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that the image of God is the knowledge of God, righteousness, and truth. Lombard is is not afraid to say that original righteousness is the very likeness to God which God implanted in man. We recount the opinions of the ancients, which in no way interfere with Augustine's interpretation of the image. And here comes uh, Melanchthon and Luther's whipping boy, uh, Peter Lombard, <laughs> who wrote this theological treatise called The Sentences. And it was the, uh, the medieval theology book 
of the day. Yep. Pop and book. He, he, as he lays out his, his statements, his sentences, uh, they keep coming back to this because medieval theology is so steeped in Lombard sentences, and they can use this phrase, uh, the philosophers and uh, Lombard back and forth. And it's insane. Like, even this guy that we're, like, using as a, as a punching bag, even he agrees with us on yeah. this one. He's the broken clock. You're going to drag that one out a little bit? And... He's, he's right twice a day at least. So he oh, got right my gosh. Time. He just got <laughs> stuck. Uh, Peter, the cliche man. Oh, I'm full of it today. Yeah. Any thoughts on that before we go move further? further? All right. I love that they dropped the, the scriptures in there, though, too, right? They got fathers, scriptures, father. All of one mind. Again, being the point of Concord. Paragraph 23. The ancient definition of original sin is that it is a lack of righteousness. This definition not only denies that mankind is capable of obedience in his body, but also denies that mankind is capable of knowing God, placing confidence in God, fearing and loving God, and certainly also the ability to produce such things. For even the theologians themselves teach in their schools that these are not produced without certain gifts and the aid of grace. In order that the matter may be understood, we say that these gifts are precisely the knowledge of God and fear and confidence in God. From these facts, it appears that the ancient definition says precisely the same thing that we say, denying fear and confidence toward God. It denies not only the actions, but also the gifts and the ability to produce these acts. Um, Something I think is important, and this will come up more and more as we move through the apology over and against the Augsburg Confession or the Formula of Concord or the uh, the large catechism in the Book of Concord. Melanchthon is writing a legal document at this point. He is making a, a scholastic argument in the style of the lawyers of the day, which means, frankly, he's going to repeat himself ad nauseum from different directions to make sure you get his point and to try to prove his point by just dropping. So each one of these paragraphs just has a little nugget of new and then a whole lot of repeat and just repeat, repeat, repeat. And it was the, the way they make an argument. It's the way the text is written. So if you get the feeling, it's like, wait, didn't he just say that? Like, yeah, yeah, he did. He's trying to drive the point home so that there's no question about what he's saying, which is, uh, you know, if you read any legal document anywhere, that's pretty much what they do, right? They repeat themselves ad nauseum. I like how he has a he has a list of things. Here are all the things you can't do. And as I read this, I kind of dubbed this the the Princess Bride paragraph. Look, you're not mostly dead. You, <laughs> you're all you, dead. You're all dead. You 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 can't fear and love God. You can't know God. You can't place confidence in God. You can't do anything. You are not mostly dead. We're not going to look through your pockets for loose change. You are all dead. That's it. That's kind of what this paragraph. It kind of sums up that. Yeah, repetitively, but. It's, it's repeating in a list this time. So just to make sure we're clear, you can't do anything. Right. The Miracle Max paragraph may be the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. that works if we're going to be specific. Yeah. If we want to bring Princess Bride in later, we'll call this the Miracle Max paragraph. little little chocolate coating would make it go down easier. That's all I got to <laughs> say. Uh, <laughs> now you're just blaving. So... Uh, again, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's horrible, Peter. We it's have good, officially though. come off the <laughs> off the rails. Fear, fear of God. Old Testament passage, uh, Old Testament way of describing faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Luther picks it up. First commandment: to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And yet, I I can't help but feel that that word is a word we despise as Americans, and that even as, as Lutherans, we're often trying to make it go away. Oh, it's not really fear. It's, it's, it's awe. 
I was like, well, you know, when I read these texts and I read them talking here, um, I'm not sure awe quite sums it up either. I think it's a bit deeper than that. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I think, you know, I have to be in fear of God because there's a day coming. You know, we, we, we acknowledge this in the Advent season. There's a day coming where I will be standing on trembling knees before a holy, righteous, and perfect judge. And if I'm not fearful in that moment and just clinging to Christ for dear life, um, then then I'm not going to have a happy eternity. For all those people who say, but pastor, I'm not afraid of God. Well, maybe you should be. And like Pastor Smith said, that's when we turn to Christ. We pray out, Lord, have mercy, because that is where mercy is found. You've also got Psalm 130. You know, with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And that gets right to this in the, in the confession. They say, he who denies concupiscence uh, robs Christ of his glory hmm. uh, in saving us when we see who we are. We fear the God who can save us out of that and does. Right. Jesus. Well, and I was just going to pick up on that because the, the argument here is that baptism for the Lutherans removes the guilt of original sin. And so when we, when we look at the cross of Christ and we know our guilt, our, our sin has been paid for, then we really find the gospel there. Yeah, it, it, but, to, but to deny that, then we rob Christ of his glory. Jesus said himself, Fear not he who can destroy the body, but fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. He's talking about God and what you guys just said a moment ago. I love Pastor Sias bringing up that it is the fear of God that flows out of the forgiveness of sins. And one of the ways I've always kind of reckoned with this in my own head is, if I had a God, maybe he's a really awesome God in general. He's like fiery. Thor, maybe he's Thor, right? And he's really powerful, but like I'm not afraid of him because I know I'm... Well, why am I not afraid of him? Because I know I can take Thor if I have to, right? That, that's the only reason I'm not afraid of something is because I can take it. I can handle it. So if I've got a God I can't fear, then I've got a God that can't protect me. It's a God I have to protect. And then I really don't have much of any God at all. But if I have the true God, well, if he can protect me, then, then therefore he's terrifying, right? He's capable of holding all heaven and earth in his hands. But for that same reason, he's also capable of taking the heaven and earth on his shoulders, taking it to the cross in Golgotha, bearing the weight of all sin, as we've said so many times now, in the body of his son, Jesus Christ, whose mind is our concord, our centrality. You're listening to Concord Matters, searching for right doctrine as the hope of unity here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. We'll be back next week.